chapter 3. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and the ushers will drop one off to you. The problem that the Galatian church was facing and that the Apostle Paul is addressing in writing to them is that they had given in to false teachers that had come that were Jewish Christians and they were telling the Christians in the region of Galatia that they needed to convert to Judaism before they could convert to Christianity. That it was necessary for them to undergo the rite of circumcision and to fulfill and to keep the law of Moses and to basically join Judaism in order to become Christians. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to the Galatian churches not just to refute the concept that these false teachers were sowing within the church there in in that region, but also to warn them that by giving heed to the teaching that was coming to them, that they were actually in danger of falling from grace. That a boundary was being crossed by what they were convincing the Galatian believers to embrace, and that they were actually leaving the blood and the cross and the grace of Christ, and that they were, they were seeking to relate to God by a completely different covenant, one that was not able to save them. And so Paul is writing this letter passionately pleading with them in hopes that they'll understand and get their head on straight and, and, and forsake this false teaching that had crept into the church. Now, I shared with you that chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians, Paul shares with them basically his personal revelation of the grace of God. That is, how the blood of Jesus Christ and the covenant, the new covenant, that was fulfilled and signed in blood at the cross, how that was revealed to him, he shares that with them in chapters 1 and 2. And as we cross now into chapters 3 and 4, Paul shifts gears and he changes from his own personal experience to now he's going to delve into this doctrinally. He's going to go into the Old Testament scriptures and seek to prove to them theologically and doctrinally that this isn't something new that God just thought up on the fly, but that this is actually God's way from the very beginning. This was in his mind from the start of all things. And so chapters 3 and 4 is Paul's doctrine concerning the grace of God. Now as Paul here in chapter 3 begins to lay out his case for grace, if you would, he basically gives to us three things to consider, to chew on, to ponder, if you're taking notes, to write down and to pray in on your own. He's showing us three areas where the concept of salvation by law, which was what the false teachers were teaching, contradicts the concept of salvation by grace. Three areas where salvation by law contradicts salvation by grace. And the first is given to us in the first five verses here of chapter 3. 
And that is that salvation by law contradicts their own personal experience. Look with me at verse 1. Paul writes and he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit... And worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, the Galatian churches had been in existence approximately 12 or 13 years already at the time now that Paul is writing this letter to them. And the problem that Paul is addressing is not something that happened quickly. It wasn't an immediate transformation in their personal belief, but it is something that was kind of sown among them, and they kind of veered off course by degrees. The false teachers didn't come in and just transform their dogma, their doctrine, but they perverted it. That's the word that Paul used back in chapter 1 when he said, if anyone perverts the gospel of Christ. They, they just, they turned the steps of the believers just so much so that by degrees and over time, they would move away from the truth of the gospel. And that's exactly what had happened to the church. By taking the emphasis off of Christ and by placing it upon themselves... It's no longer Jesus and what he accomplished, his work, his blood, his love, his grace. But now it's my works, circumcision, dietary regulation, Levitical practice and custom, adherence to Jewish law, all of those things. It it changed their focus and it took their eyes off of Jesus and it placed them on themselves. And it happened in such a way that 12 to 13 years after the church had begun, Paul is writing to a completely different church than what he had left behind. They were not the same group of people. They were not experiencing the same joy and going in the same direction. They were different than where they started. And so thus Paul begins here making his case for grace by reminding them of what they were at the beginning. He reminds them, first of all, in verse 1, what they had seen when he was among them. Uh, Again, he says, O foolish Galatians, who have bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes what you saw was Jesus Christ evidently set forth and crucified among you. Now, when the Apostle Paul went into the Galatian region with Barnabas, for the very purpose of starting these churches. He didn't go there with a degree from a theological seminary or with some qualification that some institution gave him and sent him to propagate a cause. 
He didn't go there with his own natural talent and leadership skills, hoping to make a name for himself and simply influence people by what he would do among them. He didn't go as a philanthropist, a do-gooder, who simply just wanted to try to affect mankind for his embitterment. You know? and, and so Paul goes there with this message. That, that was none of what Paul had in mind, and they understood that. When Paul the Apostle came into the region of Galatia, he was a man that was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He had a calling from God, and he had a passion to reach lost souls with the gospel of Jesus Christ, even at the expense of his own life, if that's what it would cost. We read about Paul's time in the city of Lystra. How as he preached the word to those that would listen to him, that there was a man who was impotent from birth. He was unable to walk. And it tells us that the same heard the things that Paul was sharing, and that Paul, seeing this man, perceived that he had faith to be healed. And so Paul, in the name of Jesus Christ, takes this man by the hand, and his legs receive strength. And this man who had been crippled his whole life was made whole in that very instant in the eyes of the people that were beholding. So enamored were they with what Paul had done and with what God was doing among them that immediately the people began to take Paul and Barnabas and and they sought to worship them, to deify them. And Paul quickly, it says he tore his robe and he exposed the scars and, you know, the wounds in his flesh that he had received and showed them, look, I'm a man, I am flesh, I'm just like you. There's nothing special about me. It's the God that I'm preaching that is doing this for you. Now, the amazing thing is that immediately after they seek to worship him, just one verse after, It says that there were some Jews that came and spoke evil of Paul and Barnabas. And it says that the men of the city drug them out of the city and stoned them with stones and left them for dead. One verse after they sought to worship them, they then stoned them and left them for dead. Now, you don't stone someone just to wound them. The purpose of stoning someone is to kill them. And for that reason, some Bible scholars believe that the Apostle Paul was in fact left for dead and that he was not breathing at the time that they stopped throwing rocks at him. But the Bible tells us that Paul rose up from that place where he laid there on the ground under the wounds of those stones. And he got up and he didn't skip town. He didn't run for his life. He didn't say, look at what I've done among them. Look at all the good that I've done. But he went back into the city. What kind of spirit would possess a man to go back into the place where he is stoned with stones and left for dead? And Paul brings that to their attention here. He says, are you so foolish? Look, what you saw with your own eyes was the love of Jesus Christ manifested among you. You saw the crucifixion of Jesus Christ exemplified among you. You saw it in what I sowed among you. It was evidence before you. Can the law motivate or produce that kind of power, that kind of life, the thing that you saw when I was among you? Can the law do that? Or can it simply be a work of the Spirit? He continues and he reminds them, second of all, of that initial encounter that they had with Christ. Look with me at verse 2. He says, This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law 
or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? When the apostle Peter first went to the house of Cornelius, and it's from Acts chapter 10. It was the moment when God opened salvation unto the Gentiles. See, prior to Acts chapter 10, the apostles, the elders, the church in Jerusalem, they were exclusively reaching out to Jews. But you know the story, Acts chapter 10. Peter is meditating on the house. He's hungry at lunchtime. And the Lord says, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And ultimately, Peter is sent to the household of a Gentile, a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius, who was in his heart praying, seeking, desiring that he might have a relationship with God. And so Peter comes to the house, and Peter preaches the gospel to this man, Cornelius. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 44, it says that while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them that heard the word. Again, in Acts chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, in that great council that they had, when this issue of grace and law came up, we've already read through this section in one of our previous Galatian studies. But Peter, when he puts forth his case for Gentile salvation, again, Peter says that when there had been, it says, when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago, God made choice among us, that the Gentiles, listen, by my mouth, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. The Gentiles would hear the word and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, both in the testimony of what took place in the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and also the rehashing of it by Peter through his words in Acts chapter 15, the message is clear that the Spirit of God came into the lives of the Gentile people, not by anything that they had done in their flesh, promises that they had made, changes that they promised to make within their lives, but very simply, they believed in their heart the word that they heard. Peter, or I'm sorry, Paul says this to the Galatians, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Did you make a promise to God and God said, okay, I will respond to your promise by giving you my spirit. Now that you are moving in the right direction, I will incrementally release myself to you. And as you continue to improve and to climb, I will relinquish more and more of myself to you. And we will, you know, I will teach you how to receive me. No, no, no. But very simply, they believed the word that they heard and God gave them the Holy Spirit by faith. See? And so Paul is saying to them, God didn't give you his spirit because of a promise that you made, but it happened when you simply believed. And so he goes on and he says, so in light of how you received Christ by faith and the spirit of God moved in, verse 3, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? 
How is it, Paul is saying, that you receive the Spirit of God in your heart by simply believing and receiving something that He was giving you that had nothing to do with you? But that now that you've received it, you're saying to God, you know what, I appreciate that, but I got it from here. You began in the Spirit. Are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. And in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul said to the Colossians, he says these profound words. He says, as ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. The same way that you received Christ, he says, now walk in him. He doesn't say to them, you received Christ by faith, now get your steps in your life in order yourself. But no, as you received Christ in the same way, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ? By faith. You simply heard the word of the gospel, the grace of God, the blood of Christ through the cross. You responded to what you heard, and God put his Holy Spirit within you, having nothing to do with you at all. And sometimes we think, okay, well, all right, God gave me a second chance. Now I've got his spirit, so now I've got to get my life in order. Now I've got I've to get a Bible, and I've got to get colored pencils, and I've got to get you know, a membership at a church, and I've got to do all these things because I, I, want, I just don't want to lose this. I want to hang on to this. And we begin in the Spirit, but we think somehow we can be made perfect in the flesh. I'm not going to screw this up again, God. I'm not going to make this mistake again. I'm not going to let this happen again. And we begin to, with our flesh and our energy, think that somehow we can please God. And we try to perfect in our flesh that which only can be done by the power of the Spirit of God within our lives. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, He that began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, to bring it to completion, carry it unto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That it isn't that he begins the work in you and now it's up to you to be made perfect in yourself. But he who began that work in you, he will also be faithful to complete it. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 tells us, For it is God that worketh in you both, listen, to will and to do of his good pleasure. That he is the initiator and he is also the completer. It starts in your will sown there from God, and it is completed by the power of the Spirit of God working forth in your life. So you have seen, Paul said, Jesus Christ evidently set forth, crucified among you. You have experienced the work of God's Spirit within your heart. And then he goes on in verse 5 to tell them that you also know that no man in the power of his flesh can serve God. Read verse 5. He says, Therefore, he that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You know the pastors and the elders in your church. And I think Paul is giving them a subtle jab here because I'll tell you right now, in a church that is operating according to the works of the law, there is no miracle. There is no spirit in that church. And Paul is just jabbing them. He's reminding them and saying, listen, do you remember what it was like when there was life in your church? Do you remember what it was like when there was life in your Christianity? It was when you were in submission and in harmony with the Spirit of God. 
not in your own effort making promises to try to keep the law of God. The Bible is very clear. The law brings death, condemnation. But the Spirit brings life in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, you know that no man by the works of the law can perform any good work in Jesus' name, but only that which is completed by the power of God's Spirit at work within their lives. And so Paul's first point as he makes his case for grace is that salvation by the law contradicts their personal experience. He moves on from there and he tells them, number two, that salvation by law contradicts also their scriptural intelligence. Look with me at verse 6 there. He says, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. The Judaizers were essentially telling the churches in that region that you've got to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. That was their message. And so Paul, what he does here so brilliantly is that he takes the Galatian believers by the hand. And he says, okay, they're making the case that you've got to become a Jew if you want to become a Christian. And so Paul says, let's take a look at Scripture and examine the question, what exactly is a Jew? The Judaizers, they were saying that a Jew is a person who is circumcised. A Jew is a person who adheres to and believes in and gives themselves to the law of Moses. A person of custom and principle according to Jewish law, that's a Jew. A person who is careful with their diet, who follows the kosher regulations, and a person who's into temple things, temple sacrifice, ritual, and all the rest in the priesthood. That's what makes someone a Jew. And if you want to be a Christian, you've got to become a Jew. And so Paul says, okay, all right, you want to become a Jew? I'll I'll go along with you for a minute, but let's ask the question, what exactly is a Jew? Who was the first Jew, and how did he become one? That's where Paul is going with this. And so to do it, he goes right to the source. He takes them right back to the man Abraham. See, he was the father of the Jewish people. There was no Jews before Abraham. And and so Paul says, all right, well, how did Abraham become a Jew? You're saying that you need to become a Jew. Well, how did Abraham become a Jew? He was a Babylonian. He was a pagan. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees. And God just spoke to him and called him. He wasn't a Hebrew. But yet somewhere in there, something happened in him, and he became the father of the Jewish people. So how did Abraham become a Jew, this man? Now, in verses 6 through 9, the encounter that the Apostle Paul is speaking of between God and Abraham, where it says that Abraham believed God and that it was accounted unto him for righteousness and given him the promise that in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is a reference to a conversation that took place between God and Abraham that's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 15. Now, in that 
section of scripture, and you can turn there in your Bible. I'm not going to expound on it, but I want to read it to you so that you know what it is that happened and what it is that we're talking about. Because in Genesis chapter 15, the father makes a promise to Abraham that has nothing to do with Abraham at all. Abraham has no part to play in receiving the benefit of this promise. It is all one-sided. It is all of God. He had just returned from the slaughter of the kings. He'd rescued his nephew, Lot, and, you know, he was weary. And we get the idea from reading it that he was tired and he was somewhat fearful of what might happen to him. And it says that after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abraham said, and this is just like us, Lord God, what are you going to give me? Seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. I have no son, Lord. I'm living this life. I'm going through all of these things. But what's the purpose of it? If I don't have a son and there's nothing that comes after, if there's nothing eternal about all of this, then what's the point really? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir, that is my servant. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. But he that cometh forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars or count the stars, if you be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And it says in verse 6 that he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, that is God, counted it to him for righteousness. Mark that, underline it, remember it. It says that Abraham believed in the Lord and that the Lord counted it or reckoned it or imputed it unto him as righteousness, that is perfection. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And the Lord said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he, Abraham, took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, or cut them in half, and laid each piece, one against the other, or he kind of made a corridor, a hallway, if you would, with these halves of animals, But the birds divided he not. Now you say, well, what in the world is going on here? God, all of a sudden, out of the blue, just tells Abraham to take these animals, cut them in half, and to make a corridor on the ground? What's going on? This was a custom in those days called cutting covenant. When two parties would enter into a contractual agreement with each other, they would cut covenant. That is, they would take an animal that was to be a sacrifice. And they would slaughter it, cutting it in half and putting one piece on one side and the other piece on the other. And then they would take each other by the hand and declare their side of the agreement. And then hand in hand, they would walk through the corridor created by the pieces. And that to them was a seal or a testament to say, may 
What happened to this animal happened to us if you or I break our side of the agreement. It was called cutting covenant. And God is essentially saying unto Abraham here, listen, Abraham, you want to know how for sure you're going to know this is going to happen? Let's make a covenant. Let's make an agreement. Let's cut covenant here, Abram. And so they take these animals and they cut them in half and they form a corridor and then Abraham waits. And Abraham waits. And Abraham waits. Because we're going to walk through it together, right, God? You're going to take me by the hand, and we're going to pass through the pieces, and I'm going to keep my side of the deal, and you're going to keep your side of the deal, and then I'm going to be sure in my heart that you're going to do this thing. And so Abraham cuts the covenant, but he waits, and he waits. And it says that when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, so he waited long enough that they stank, and that the ravens and the hawks began to come. And it says that Abram drove them away. And it says, and when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he, the Lord, said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward they shall come out with great substance. And you shall go to thy fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come here again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass. Now God declares. Listen, God comes down. Where is Abraham, by the way? Come on, he's sleeping. And God says, this is going to be your land. You're going to inherit it. I am going to fulfill my word. It will not return unto me void. And it says, it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces In the same day, the Lord made a covenant or a promise with Abraham saying, unto thy seed have I given this land. From the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenzanites and the, you know, you can read the rest of the chapter. I don't have to read those names. But here's what happens in Genesis chapter 15, the very passage that Paul is quoting in Galatians chapter 3. God made a promise to Abram that had nothing to do with Abraham's works at all. Abraham had no part in receiving this promise other than to simply what? Believe it and receive it, right? That was Abram's part, to believe and to receive. And let me ask you a question. How many people passed through those pieces? One. Abram was by the side. Abram was in a deep sleep. God didn't say, all right, Abram, this is your part to play and this is my part to play and let's walk through the pieces. But God did it by himself. God passed between the pieces because it was God's promise that he would fulfill and it had nothing to do with Abram's performance whatsoever. His responsibility was to simply believe it. And the Bible says that it was accounted unto him for what? Come on. 
I don't let my kids do that. You know, I can't let you either. What was it counted for? That's right. Righteousness. Abraham was declared righteous, not because of what he promised he would do or of what he did, but because he believed in what God had said. And Paul takes it one step further here in verse 8 because he doesn't just limit it to someone who is related to Abraham by blood. But he says that the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. Not just the seed of Abraham according to the flesh or the Israeli or Jewish people and tribes but that through his seed all nations of the earth would be blessed. And so Paul gives to us, it says that, you know, that these things happen. Now, listen, what Abraham got by responding to God was righteousness, salvation, if you would. It was before circumcision came into existence. Circumcision was not established until Genesis chapter 17. I don't know if you're a mathematician, but 17 is after 15. Historically, the righteousness that Abraham inherited by faith came before the law was given. The law wasn't given until 430 years later in Exodus chapter 20. The righteousness Abraham received was before the tabernacle or the temple or the sacrificial Levitical system was established. And he was declared righteous before there was any such thing as kosher. In fact, if you read on in Genesis, right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, when God comes and literally visits Abram with two angels, it says that Abram cooked a lamb for the Lord with milk and butter. Dairy, meat, same meal. He gave it to God. God ate it. I don't know. Anyway. Listen. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. His righteousness and what made him a Jew was that he believed God. It had nothing to do with any external thing that he agreed with. So Abraham was the first Jew and he was saved by promise, not by works. Now in verses 10 through 12, as Paul moves on, he then contrasts salvation by faith with salvation by law. He says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. So if you think that you're going to be saved because you're so faithful in keeping the law, he says anyone who, who, who is of the works of the law is under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. So if you're seeking to be justified by your performance, your goodness, your works, your religious duties, your creed, then you better be real good at it. Because if you keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, you're guilty of breaking it all, and therefore you are under the curse, and therefore you cannot be accepted by God. You cannot be blessed by God. But that a man is but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. He quotes Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. That the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but, again quoting, the man that doeth them shall live in them. See, the law is me. I keep the law. I put forth effort and apply mental 
prowess in keeping the law and in doing the works. It's not God. There's no faith involved in the law. It's my works. And Paul says that it's mutually exclusive. Law and grace. Graw, you know, it doesn't exist. It doesn't work. It's either one or the other. It's either law or grace. The law is not of faith, but the man that doeth shall shall live in them. But listen to what he goes on to say. He says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And what we see in the person of Jesus Christ is God who became a man. He was born of a virgin and he was fully man. He was flesh and blood. He was just like you and I. And as a man, he lived a life keeping and fulfilling the law of God perfectly. Never at one point giving in to temptation. Never at one point falling into iniquity or sin. Never at one point expressing rebellion or frustration at what God was doing in his life. There was no iniquity to be found in the person of Christ at all whatsoever. He was completely righteous from the day of his birth to the day that he gave up the ghost. There was no sin in him. And yet, even though he fulfilled the law perfectly and could have claimed the status of eternal life and not experienced death, though he was righteous, yet he willingly absorbed within himself the death of the cross. He took upon himself the curse of the cross, the curse of hanging upon a tree, not for himself, but for those of us, you and I, that couldn't keep the law. It says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. And the result of that, verse 14, is that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, that's you and I, through your membership at Calvary Chapel and your continued promise to support us financially. No. The blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise, listen, the promise, not the law of the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit. How? Through faith. By believing, just as Abraham believed God. Something so unlikely. I'm going to have a son, look how old I am. You're going to make me righteous, look how dark I am. You're going to give me this land? Look, it's covered with the Amorites. You're going to give me heaven? For what? Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. We, you and I, by faith in the promise of God, by simply believing what God has said and what God has done, we become heirs of God and heirs of the blessing of Abraham, receiving the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul says, they're telling you you want to become a Jew? Listen, I'll tell you how to become a Jew. Do what the first Jew did. Believe God. He says, salvation by law contradicts your scriptural intelligence. Get back in the book. Open your Bible, Paul is saying. Read and see. What is a Jew? What is salvation? 
So Paul gives that to them. And then finally, Paul's third point. I say finally, but it's not really finally. It's just his third point. Salvation by the law contradicts the very nature of a covenant. We are actually almost done, don't worry. Salvation by law contradicts the very nature of a covenant. Look with me at verse 15. He says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no man disannulled or addeth thereto. Now, what Paul is basically saying for, to us, to them, is saying, he's like, let me bring this into the realm of human relationships. When he says, after the manner of men. We've been talking about God's covenant with man, and that can be hard to understand, but let's bring it into the realm of just human relationships. If a man makes a covenant with a man, and they seal it, it's a binding contract, he says, you understand, nobody can add to it, nobody can take away from it, and nobody can cancel it out. Nobody add it thereto, no one take it away, and no one can disannul it. it. It's a contract. We understand contracts. We make contracts with banks and with each other and with car companies. And, you know, we understand what a contract is and how it works. And he's saying that once a contract is sealed, it's sealed. It is what it is. That's just the nature of it. He says, now Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. So covenant number one that Paul is dealing with, talking about, is the covenant of promise. What we would call salvation by grace through faith. The promises were given to Abraham and to his seed. And he saith not, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Now, that... Just hang on to that because we're going to come back to that when we get over into verse 26 and 27. But he's bringing up the concept of this covenant of promise that is in Abraham that links him directly to Jesus Christ. Then in verse 17, he's going to bring up the other covenant, law. He says, and this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after the first covenant, the covenant of promise. So you have the covenant of law, I mean, promise, grace through faith, and then the covenant of law, which was given 430 years after God gave Abraham the promise. He says, the law, being that secondary covenant, it cannot, by the very nature of a covenant, cancel out the covenant of promise that was initially made to Abraham. It cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, the second contract, then it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. In other words, the blessing of Abraham that Paul spoke of in verse 13, that comes through Jesus Christ, receiving the promise of the Spirit through faith, that first covenant of promise, He's saying that God didn't give that to Abraham by law. He gave it to him by promise. And remember, in verse, what was it, 16, he links promise to the seed, which is who? Christ. That's right. And it's important. It's very important. Listen, because the first covenant of promise given to Abraham, his salvation, links him directly to Christ. And then he says the second covenant given 430 years later, the law cannot cancel out the first contract that was made. We understand that. 
So the natural question that's going to arise is, okay, why make a second contract? If the first covenant was the one that God gave to Abraham that links him to Christ, that's ultimately going to link us to him and make us heirs of the promise, then why add the law? What was the purpose of it? It wasn't a very good move if you want to ask us. We might think, we might say. But verse 19, Paul's thinking like us, and look what he says. He says, wherefore then serveth the law? Or why then even have the law? He says, it was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Paul says there was another problem. There was something that complicated the work of this contract, of this salvation. There was something that was interrupting sin. He says it was added because of transgression. See, man through his sin had worked his way into a great deal of debt by God. The debt of sin. The problem of iniquity. The uncleanness that is within all of us. This sin, this problem that's there. And the law Paul is beginning to uncover and show to us was God's way, not of purifying the sinner, but rather of exposing the sin. The, the, the purpose of the law was to expose the sin. 430 years after, because of the problem of iniquity, until Jesus came. Now look what he says. He says, now, verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? Are these two covenants, the grace on the one side, the law on the other, are they contrasting one another? Are they conflicting with each other? Is it against the promise of God? He says, no, God forbid. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness should have been by the law. In other words, if man in all of his energy, in all of his strength, was even able to keep the law, then salvation would have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So Paul says, here's what happens. You have the covenant of promise, but you have the problem of sin. And so therefore, the covenant of law was added to expose transgression. If you would, it was a lien on the first covenant. We all know what a lien is, right? A big, fat IOU. Yeah, <laughs> this lien will be lifted off the contract once this part of the problem has been rectified, once it's been taken care of. Now, our sin separates us from God. Holy God cannot be in fellowship with sinful man. And so therefore, the problem of sin has to somehow be done away. And so a lien was added. It was the law. And it tells us that that law was there until the seed should come. Look again with me back at verse 19. It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. The one who would fulfill the lien would come, and that would be Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23. He says, but before faith came, that is, that the promise was fulfilled by the coming of Christ, we were kept under the law, 
shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. And so Paul says there, he answers the question of what's the purpose of the law in verse 24. He says, wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. He says the law was our schoolmaster. Now, do you know the picture I get in my mind when I read this? You remember those Little House on the Prairie videos when you'd get like, you know, not um, Mrs. Beetle, but the bad teachers, you know, the substitutes or the ones in the, and, and they would come in and they would be, uh, you know, scowling and someone would do something wrong and, and they would grab the ruler and they would call the unruly student to the front of the class and hold out your hand. And, you know, some of you probably experienced that, you know, whoosh, you know, and, yeah, you know, and, and that's the law. The law is a harsh schoolmaster. But what it does is that it drives us to an understanding that we have a problem, that we have a need, that there's iniquity, there is sin, there is unrighteousness that's within us. Now, I have kind of a rabbit trail I wanted to go down. That's what this separate sheet of paper is right here. If It says right there, if I have time, and I don't have time. So I'm going to skip the rabbit trail concerning the law. But I do want to say this, because we're going through these studies in Galatians. And, it, and, and it's all about the grace of God and how we're separated from the law. And lest you should think that I'm preaching a cheap gospel... And then I'm saying that it is acceptable for a person to claim Christ and yet go on living in sin. I'm not teaching that at all. The Bible says that the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. And the law was a schoolmaster that drove us to Christ at the beginning. And the law is still a schoolmaster that drives us to Christ now. And sin that separated man from God and destroyed man at the first will still separate fellowship between man and God. And sin will still destroy life even now. And so the law is good. And we are called to live holy lives. Not empowered by our effort, but empowered by the indwelling of the Spirit of God within us. It's not a cheap gospel. But it's the power of the Spirit that's given to us through the covenant of grace. The law is a schoolmaster that brings us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Because once you realize that you're a sinner, it drives you to an understanding that you need a Savior. And when you come to the Savior, you find that you're forgiven by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. And what that is basically saying is that once you come to faith in Christ, lean release. You know that day that you pay off the car? I don't know about paying off the mortgage yet. I'll tell you in about 30 years, you know. But the day you pay off the car and you get that letter that says lien release on it, and you're like, yeah, it's mine now. You know, I finally own it. And that's, what, that's essentially what Christ accomplished upon the cross. He took care of the debt of sin, and he released us from the covenant of law so that we could inherit the promise of Abraham, the blessing of the Spirit of God living in us through faith. Once faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. The two covenants are contrary to each other, and we are heirs of promise, not heirs of the law. Do you understand what the Apostle Paul is telling us here? So concerning these covenants and the nature of covenants, this third point that we're looking at in Paul's case for grace, Salvation was given to Abraham and also to the Gentiles, not by their works and not by the keeping of the law, 
but simply and exclusively by faith in Jesus Christ and their believing the promise that was given. The first covenant that was given was promise and salvation by faith. But until Christ came, sin rendered man lost. And thus the second covenant of the law was added to show man his need for a savior and to drive him to Christ. But once a person comes to Christ, the lien of the law is released from their life and they are set free in his name. And thus Paul shows to the Galatian churches how salvation by the law contradicts the nature of the covenants. The lien of the law does not nullify the promise that was given to Abraham, but Christ fulfilled the lien, and thus Abraham and now we are saved by grace through faith. That is the case that Paul is making to the Galatian churches. I know that is confusing, maybe. I hope it wasn't, you know. Some of these things are confusing a a little bit, you know. My goal in preparing a Bible study is that you don't have to pay attention. You know, that... You know, that you, you're going to get it even if you're daydreaming, you know. And, and I'm finding that difficult as we go through some of these things. It's like, listen, if you don't pay attention, you're like, what in the world is he talking about, you know. But what's the conclusion of the matter in verse 26? Because this is what Paul's trying to drive home to the Galatians. And this is what God wants to drive home to the weary saint who's still frustratingly trying to earn his favor. What does this mean? He says, for you now, you here tonight, you're sitting here right now, Bible in your lap, wishing I would shut up. (laughs) You right now, you're listening. He says, you are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Think about what that means. Think about what it means to say that I am a son of God. I am a daughter of God. I have been adopted into the family of God. That when I say father, I'm not talking to Captain Van Trapp, you know. And it isn't just the title that he as God places upon himself and demands that I call him that, but he is my father. Paul would say to the Romans that he gives us the spirit of himself so that when we cry the spirit of adoption, we cry and we say, Abba. It's the Greek word for daddy the most intimate term that you would use in addressing someone, a significant you know, parent or a father. That you are a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by the law, not by your performance and how good you're doing and how faithful you've been in your devotions or how long you've been walking with Christ or how many services you've attended or how much you've done. None of that matters. You're a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you have been, as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And that's why verse 16 is so important. Remember when he said that it isn't seeds, plural, but seed, singular. Because if it was seeds, plural, you would have to have Jewish blood. You would have to produce a genealogy that shows that somehow your lineage can be traced back to Abram. And I would almost say there's probably very few of us, if any, here that could do that. But because it was seed being Christ, that he was the heir of the promise, once we, you and I, are baptized into Christ, we become linked with Jesus, and therefore we are heirs of the promise, the blessing of Abraham. Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all 
one in Christ Jesus. And that is not what the Judaizers were teaching the Galatian churches. They were establishing the walls of separation between Jew and Gentile. They were driving in the wedge deeper that Christ came to remove. And he finishes it, he caps it off by saying, if you be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed. Do you hear that? He says, you are a Jew. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a Jew. The Judaizers, listen, if you want to be a Jew, you ever seen one of these? It's called a scalpel. You've got to be circumcised. Paul says, no. If you believe, you're Abraham's seed. And if you're Abraham's seed, then you are heirs according to the promise. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for this promise that we have. That it isn't based upon our performance or how well we're doing. For you said that when we are faithless, you are faithful still. You said, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. And I pray tonight, Father, for anyone here that's laboring under the burden of the law, that's still seeking to somehow be justified by their performance or to please you by their good works or their faithful service. I would pray tonight, Father, that they would embrace the promise, that they would embrace the grace that was demonstrated on the cross and freely given. And for any here tonight that are laboring under the law, I would pray that even now, Lord, they would release their hold upon that burden. And that you would meet them by filling them afresh with your Holy Spirit. I pray for any that are here tonight, Lord, that began in the Spirit, but they're seeking to be made perfect in the flesh. They're feeling frustrated. They're spiritually tired, wearied. I pray, Father, that you would revive and refresh them. That you would grant to them again the joy of their salvation. That you would take them back to the place where perhaps they veered off course years ago promise cards, pledge cards. And that they would give themselves completely again to just trusting in the grace of Christ. I pray that we would be people that are free, experiencing and expressing joy. That we would be a church that is alive, given to the grace of God, thriving by the Spirit of God moving in the promises of God. And that we would rejoice in Jesus Christ. 
It is you, Lord, that worketh in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. I pray now that you would bring it to pass in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.